Have you ever had a wake-up call in your life? Something that happens, it was unexpected, someone said something to you, or something happened in your life, where you're like, whoa, I better do something. I remember I was in college, and my stomach started to hurt. And so I went to the doctor. And the doctor said that you have a diseased gallbladder, and you need to get it removed. And he said, don't worry, it's not going to take long, you're going to be in and out, and you'll be back to health in no time. And I thought, okay, this is good. And yet, right before I was going to leave that appointment, the doctor said, Eric, the reason that you have a diseased gallbladder is because of your poor eating habits. Now, I'm not surprised by that because I preferred then and still now the taste of pizza over broccoli all the time. But I didn't know it was having such an effect on my life. To the point where the doctor said, look, when I'm looking at your blood tests here, if you don't change your eating habits, you're also a pre-diabetic. In, in six months, you're going to be a full-blown diabetic if you don't do something about it. And I remember at that point, this doctor who has authority, who is being truthful to me because he cared about me, gave me two options. I could continue to eat as I did and suffer the consequences, or I could change my eating habits and hopefully not have diabetes. Thankfully, I did the latter, though I still prefer pizza to broccoli. But it was one of those things where it was a wake-up call. I could continue to do what I was always doing and see where it landed me, or I could make changes, even though it was hard to do. And that's what I did. I'm wondering, what was your wake-up call? Maybe someone said something to you, or something happened at your job, or something happened in a relationship where you're like, look, I I better make some changes. Because if I don't, I don't know what's going to happen to me. This is that much-needed wake-up call. I don't know what your wake-up call looks like or if you've had one, but you're going to have one today because that's what Revelation 8 and 9 is all about. We're in the midst of this Revelation study that we've entitled Embrace the Wonder. And we're in the midst of Revelation where we are seeing God's judgment being enacted in many different ways. And we're going to see that in an incredible way today. And God is going to use these passages, I hope, to wake us up, not just because of the judgments that we're going to see, but what happens at the end of chapter 9. So what I want to do before we start is I want to give you two caveats or two um, things that I want you to consider before we look at the text. The first is this. When you look at Revelation 8 and 9 and a lot of Revelation, if you're like me, I'm thinking I need to do some PR for God because he is not looking like this loving God that we see throughout the Bible. And then I thought, no, 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 I don't have to do PR for God. Because when God speaks truth, or God enacts judgment, or God shows us his righteousness in a real way, it is rooted always in God's love. Anytime God tells us the truth, even though we don't want to hear it, he's trying to wake us up to a new reality, to his reality. And he does that because he loves us. He's pursuing us. He cares about us. And just like my doctor who cared enough about me to tell me the truth, so too does God tell us the truth. It doesn't always feel good. It makes us think about a lot of changes we have to make in our lives. But he does that because he loves us. Speaking of truth, I don't know if you've noticed, this is a thing that has happened all the way from the beginning of time, but I've noticed it even more now in our culture. We prefer subjective truth to ultimate truth. What I mean by that is this. In our attempt to discover what we think is true, usually we start with what is true for me instead of what actually is true. And so when we're looking at truth in our culture, we oftentimes look at it and say, okay, what feels good to me? 
or what feels good for our society, or what's going to help me live the life that I want to live. And then we live in truth that way. Instead of starting with, okay, what is the source of truth or who is the source of truth? And then basing our life on that. For example, let's say that God is the source of truth, which I believe he is. If we start with the premise, if God exists, then whatever he says about my life and about the world, I need to do. I need to align myself with. We should start that way because he's the source of truth and we should align our lives with that. That's what we call ultimate truth or objective truth. That there's a truth source and we align our lives with that. But oftentimes when it comes to God or scripture or whatever it is when it comes to a relationship with him, usually in our culture we start with this. If there's a God, I will decide if I want to do what he says I will take the good parts of God and apply it to my life, and then those bad parts of God, well, I don't want anything to do with him. We are our own God, and we decide what truth is. When we act that way, and we decide what truth is, our scriptures look like Thomas Jefferson's Bible. Have you ever seen Thomas Jefferson's Bible? There's a lot of parts that he kept that he liked, and then he cut out the rest and threw it away. If we want to do that, then we're not going to hear what God's wake-up call to us is today. If we want to just pick and choose what we think truth is, who God is, and not align ourselves with who God is, especially in these verses, we won't hear this wake-up call that I believe God wants to give us today. And so you and I, we have to decide today, before we look at this text, is God the source of truth? Is he who he says he is? And if so, what do we do with that? What changes do we need to make? How do we have to align ourselves with that? What does he say about life? What does he say about afterlife? And so we need to get to that point. And in your mind, you have to decide that today before we really look forward. And so what I want to do is I want to look at Revelation 8 and 9 with you through that lens. So open up to Revelation 8 and 9. We will not be able to read all of those words today. So I encourage you to read it in your own time. But I want to start with the first few verses in Revelation 8. Revelation 8 and 9 continues with the judgments that we saw last week. It's the seventh seal. We're going to see trumpet judgments. God is going to continue to show his wrath and his fury on the earth. But what's so interesting, if you're reading the text closely, you're like, wait a minute. All of a sudden, we see this incredible few verses about prayer above all things. So look with me at uh, Revelation 8, 3 through 4. It says this. Then another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar. And a great amount of incense was given to him to mix with what? The prayer of God's people as an offering on the gold altar before the throne. And the smoke of incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. We have said this so many times throughout the series, and we're going to say it all the way through. Revelation was not written just about the future. When John was writing this, he wasn't just thinking, okay, in 2021, they're going to interpret all the world's events through this. No. He did not write it for us to think about what's going to happen in the end, though that is part of it. The main thrust of John was to write it to Christ followers who were suffering. Seven churches in the Asia Minor who were trying to live faithfully 
with Jesus in a culture and under a government who wanted nothing to do with God and how to live faithfully to them. That's who John's writing to. And to give them hope, not just that God would reign and rule on the throne forever. He also gave them hope today in their suffering that God wants to hear them. And we hear in this beautiful verse that when we pray, John says the prayers surround God's throne room like a sweet aroma, like incense. I mean, think of that for a moment. God is sitting on his throne right now. And where he is reigning and ruling on the throne, when we pray, those prayers are swirling around his throne room. And what we see even in this verse, it's because of God's prayer that God acts. God acts on the behalf of the people. So I want to just pause for a moment before we get to the judgments, because this is a part of it. I want to think about our own lives for a moment. How do you and I handle the hard things in life? Are, are we prone to worry? Are we prone to fear? Are we prone to go to other people and just dump our problems on them? Are we prone to just sit and quiver and wonder if God really cares? What if in the midst of our suffering and in our hard times, it's an opportunity to pray? To pray in such a way that we know that our prayers are swirling around God's throne. And when he is ready, he wants to act on those behalf. When I was thinking about this text, I was thinking about prayers that were uttered for me. I remember when my mom was pregnant with me, there was a doctor who laid his hand on my mom's stomach and prayed for me when I wasn't even born yet. And I didn't become a Christian until I was almost 18. His prayers were swirling around in God's throne room. And God used those prayers to enact something in me. When your grandparents were praying for you, some of those prayers may be coming true now. I don't know what that looks like, but all I know is when we're going through hard times or when we need to act, ask God to act, he wants us to pray. He needs to answer it. He needs to do it in his time. But what he's asking us to do is pray because prayer works. I love what David Platt says about it. Our battle is fierce. Our prayers are effective. And our God is faithful. Whatever battle you're facing, I know it's fierce. I just spoke to a woman today who's just walking through death. It is fierce. Man, our prayers they're effective. I don't know when they're effective. They could be effective today. They could be effective in 18 years. They could be effective in 200 years. But they are effective. They are swirling around God's throne room. And the reason I know they're effective is because God is faithful. So I want to pause. I want to ask you right now, would you go to the throne of God and pray so that your prayers are surrounding God's throne right now? What is the thing that you need to pray for today? that you're worrying about or fearful about or you're struggling with, let's take it to God today. So would you just take some time to pray? Lord, thank you for this picture where you are at right now on your throne 
our prayers are coming up to you like sweet aroma. You love when we pray. For when we pray, we acknowledge that you're in control and we are not. When we pray, we are acknowledging that though people may fail us, you never will. Lord, surrounding your throne room right now are prayers for our children, prayers for our future, prayers for our grandchildren, prayers for our marriages, prayers for our finances, prayers for our depression, prayers for just life. Lord, you welcome those. You love those. And now, God, we trust you with the results. Just like we see in this passage, you chose to answer prayer in this way. We ask, Lord, that you would answer prayer in your way, in your time, and we humble ourselves and surrender to that. Our battle is fierce. Our prayers, Lord, they're effective because you're faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. I wish the rest of the passage was that easy, but it's not. We see God is faithful through the answer of our prayers, and we also see that God is faithful through the enactment of his judgment. Both come from his love. And if you're familiar with Israel's history, familiar with how Israel had to deal with Pharaoh and the Egyptians, you're going to notice in these trumpet judgments that they look a lot like the plagues that God rained down on the Egyptians. And when you look at those plagues and then you look at the judgments here in Revelation 8 and 9, it should cause you to say, why? Why, God, does it have to be so bad? Why do you do this? And oftentimes God gets a bad rap, but we should ask, why did God have to do that in the first place? For the Israelites, I should say the Egyptians who were dealing with the Israelites, and Pharaoh, and even for God's people, what we see in Revelation 8 and 9, they come because of the people are hard-hearted against God. You see, God's been pursuing them over and over and over again. God's been knocking on the door of their heart, bringing circumstances in their life to try to turn their heart to him, and nothing is working. So God had to bring these plagues down to get their attention, to say that he is holy and worthy to be praised, but more than that, he wants a relationship with them. And hopefully this would open their eyes to this God of judgment, who also is a God of love. And so what you're going to see in Revelation 8 and 9, we're going to look at just a few of these plagues this morning. They're out of God's love, even though it doesn't always feel that way. For instance, Revelation 8, 7. The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down on the earth. One-third of the earth was set on fire. One-third of the trees were burned, and all of the green grass was burned. And you continue to read on and on and get, excuse me, creation is just affected, obliterated by God's judgment, trying to get the attention of the people. If you fast forward to Revelation 9, verse 3, more of these judgments. This one, it says, Then locusts came from the smoke and descended on the earth, and they were given power to sting like scorpions. They were told not to harm the grass or plants or trees, but only the people who did not have the seal of God in their foreheads. That phrase, the seal of God, is the same phrase you see in Ezekiel. This seal was placed upon God's chosen people at the time, the church, Christians, so that they wouldn't have to go through the judgment. So they were spared from that. But we see that others were not spared from that. But they were going through these horrific judgments. And if that wasn't enough, look what happens towards the end of Revelation 9. 
One third of all the people on earth were killed by these plagues. By the fire and smoke and burning sulfur that came from the mouths of the horses. One third of the people were, were killed. I told you before, Thomas Jefferson had a Bible where he kept the things he liked and threw the rest away. I have a feeling Revelation 8 and 9 didn't make the cut. <laughs> if I had to tell you, hey, let me tell you a few passages of Scripture that shows that God is loving, I probably wouldn't take you to Revelation 8 and 9. What do we do with passages like Revelation 8 and 9 and God's judgment and the violence in Scripture, whether it's in the New Testament or the Old Testament? Is it a sign that God is not loving does it show us that God does not care? I would argue no. And I know if you're like me, you've wrestled with some of this. A book that I recommend that I bought that I'm not all the way through yet, but man, it's really helping even me, is this book by Dan Kimball. It's called How Not to Read the Bible. And in the Bible, or in this book, he talks about what do we do with judgment and violence? And he, and he says something very helpful. He says this, when I struggle with the violence of the Bible, I try to recall the God of the whole Bible. The God who is patient, loving, compassionate, and forgiving. And I like this part. He says, my trust in God isn't a blind trust whatsoever. It is a deep trust built from a lot of questioning and looking at God who is throughout the scriptures, not just parts, but the whole of the Bible. Would you do me a favor for a moment? I want you to think in your life about two or three of your worst moments ever. I see some people cringing like, I don't even want to think about it. <laughs> think about something that happened with your kid or your spouse or at work or in the privacy of your home or when you're like, oh man, this is a bad, bad, bad moment. Do you have it? I want you to imagine that someone never knew who you were and they walked into your life in that moment and in those moments what would they come across as their picture of you? If you were to think, if I were, if you were to see the moments of my life and just back out, you would say, Eric needs to go to jail for a very, very long time. <laughs> I had some bad moments in my life. Now, if my best friend were to come along and you were to say to him, man, Eric is this, and he would say, wait a minute, where would you get that picture from? Well, he did this. He's like, oh yeah, he, he had a moment here, but that's not who Eric is. Eric is all of these things, not just that. And I wonder if those who struggle with the violence or judgment of God only look at Revelation 8 and 9 or other pastors and say, ah, that's just God. But when you look at the whole of Scripture, you can't walk away with a picture of God who is just pro-violence or just pro-judgment. Because he's not. Comprehensively, he is grounded in love, grounded in relationship, grounded in grace and pursuit. I mean, think about it for a moment. What story do you know of where two of the people who were commissioned not to do something did it, ruined all of creation for all of people, and only moments later we find God going after those people to have a relationship with them again? And from that moment, in Genesis 3, all the way through the end of Revelation, we see a people who continue to turn away from God, and yet a God who we see in Jesus Christ in person, doing whatever it takes to have a relationship with his people. 
And so you can't just say to me, God is just pro-violence and God is just judgment. Yes, there are some judgment that God has to bring down because he can't allow unrighteousness and sin to not be punished. But it's not because he is a mean God. It is because he is comprehensively a loving God. Now you may say, Eric, I get it. I see that. But Revelation 8 and 9, I'm still stuck with it. I'm still stuck with these verses. And like I said before, I struggle with that too. But now I told you before, this is when you have to start thinking, okay, do I define truth? Do I put God in a box? Or do I start with God and let him define truth? Because it's interesting. I told you that Revelation 8 and 9 is a wake-up call. And you probably think, yeah, it's the judgments. We need to do something so we don't have to ever go under God's judgment. Thank you for Jesus for sparing us of that. Yeah, we need Jesus. But that's not the wake-up call I'm talking about. You see, one-third of the earth was killed, but there were some people that remained. And you would think, oh man, those people that saw all those judgments, they would be turning to God. Spare me, I need you. Look what happens. Revelation 9, 20 through 21. If we could put it on the screen, thank you. Just think about this. The people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent and still refused to turn to God. These people are seeing locusts, scorpions, creation burning up around them. They're seeing loved ones, friends die. They don't turn to God. That, to me, I, I read that, I'm like, I have to be reading this wrong. I mean, I look at things that are bad in the world, I'm like, oh man, I need Jesus. I mean, this is nothing compared to these judgments. They still refused to turn from their own ways. Here's why. They continued to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their witchcraft or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Here's the wake-up call. We don't have a problem with a God of judgment. We have a problem with God, period. Because you know what? If we truly were scared of what could happen at the end of the world, especially after we die, if we really believe there's a hell, don't you think that all of us would be like, oh my goodness, I don't want to go there. Give me Jesus. But we don't. In fact, we sing songs like Highway to Hell. We say funny things like, hey, I'm living my best life. This is going to get me to hell. I'm going and I'm bringing friends with me. We joke about it. Because honestly, it's not about the judgment of God and hell that we have a problem with. It's with God himself. Because these people would not repent. They would not turn to God. Why? Because they were worshiping another God. Worshiping other things that would give them worth and value and significance. Even though life was falling apart around them, they could not see their need for God because they defined truth a different way. Not with if there is a God of judgment, I better get in line. It's I am going to decide who my God is and I'm going to worship him no matter what the other God says. They refused to repent. Because they couldn't see God. Because their eyes were on a different God. Now I'm probably 
thinking this morning that none of you woke up to worship the demons today. <laughs> if you did, let's talk afterwards, please. We've got to talk about that. Or I'm assuming in your house today you didn't bow down to an idol of bronze or silver or gold. But I have a feeling that some of us are bowing down to another god or gods that are preventing us from seeing this God who is judgment, who has judgment, who is also loving and pursuing you. And you and I will never see it until we turn away from those gods to the real loving God who is pursuing us all along. Tim Keller, he wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. And so when you read gods like this, you're like, I don't understand. But let me give you a definition of what he says, and let me just give you a, a few cultural gods that maybe we bow down to that we don't even know. He defines an idol or a god. Is anything more important to you than God? Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God? Anything you seek to give you what only God can give? That's what an idol is. Anything we bow down to that we're trying to find in the creation that we should find in the creator. And so he says this. Here's just a couple gods. Think about your own life. Life has only meaning if I have power and influence over others. That's the power God. Life has only meaning if I am loved and respected by others. That's the approval God. I only have worth if I have a kind of pleasure experience or finances or good stuff or a particular quality of life. That's the comfort idol. Life only has meaning if I'm able to get mastery over a certain part of my life. That's the control idol. Life only has meaning if I'm highly productive and I get a lot done. That's the work idol. Life has only meaning if my political or social cause is making progress and ascending in influence or power. That is the ideology God. Life has only meaning if I look a certain way. That is the image God. You get the picture. There are things right now that no matter what God says or does, he can't get your attention because we're bowing down to things. Things that I love, it says idols that can neither see nor hear nor walk mean they're dead. They can't do anything for you. These idols we sell ourselves out to, thinking they'll give us worth, value, satisfaction, and then at the end of the life, we're left with nothing. I love what Ian Paul says. The irony here is this. In rejecting the true God and his worship, they, or we, are worshiping the very things that are causing misery. The very things that you and I are worshiping today, whether it's comfort or power or control or money or, or approval or, or how we look, whatever it is, we think those will satisfy us and they don't and they can't. And in fact, those things are causing misery because they're not filling the hole that only God can fill in your soul. You and I will never see God in his truest sense, even if things are crashing all around you like they are in Revelation 8 and 9, unless we see this true picture of God. See, today's a wake-up call. Just like the doctor looked at me and said, you gotta make a change, or you're gonna be unhealthy. Or you're never gonna have the life that you were created to have. So too is God saying that to you. God is telling you the truth today because his truth is anchored in his love for you. God loves you so much today that he wants to point out some things in your life, some gods in your life that you're bowing down to, that is keeping you from the God in your own life. Because as you view the gods in your own life and what they can give you, can they give you what Jesus can give you? Think about your God in light of this. That Jesus saw that you needed him, and instead of you having to work for him, 
He worked for you. Instead of you trying to make your way to him, he made his way down to us. He lived a perfect life. He died a perfect death. He died with your sin, your shame, your guilt, your false worship, everything onto him. He was killed for it. Then three days later, he rose again, promising you life here and life for eternity. Can your false gods give you that? Can those things that you're bowing down to for worth and satisfaction and value and purpose, can they give you that? I'm hoping that today you will see the goodness of God and you will turn from whatever God you are bowing down to to the God who's been pursuing you all along. He deserves our praise. So you stand and let's worship together.